Chapter Seven, Part A, Women of America, by John Bruce Larris. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Seven, Revolutionary Days. Though the present chapter in its title purports to tell of the days of the War for Independence, in reality this is but an arbitrary heading, for we shall approach those days from the distance of a quarter of a century. Not that there were at the beginning of this period any distinct limits of demarcation from the days immediately preceding it, the contrary was the case. But it is needful for the chronicler that he have some point of departure in each of his progressive steps toward the goal of today. The opening period of this chapter, therefore, is about the year 1750. There are reasons for this, apart from the arbitrary whim of the historian. Though not exactly in the year dividing the century, yet about that time there began to be manifested a spirit of American nationality such as never had before been shown. For the first time the country began to appear to itself in the aspect of something more than an aggregation of colonies and to examine itself whether it were not in truth a nation from the canadas to the carolinas there began to be a feeling of cohesion a tardy and half-awake recognition of unity of interests and race there had come about a much fractured and thinly stretched chain of communication and continuity from north to south and this was having the effect of binding together the scattered settlements in a feeling of union, which was in a way effectual in the shaping of the history of women in America. There were still, there ever must be, differences of manners and customs, and even of thought, imposed by the geographical dwellings of the women of the various sections, but there was withal a certain continuity and persistence of type, and this was gathering strength to survive the coming days of storm. During years of stress, in the face of treason to itself at the hands of its own daughters, as well of foreign foes, it did so survive and became the American woman of the early days of the Republic. But there was much of vicissitude to be borne first, vicissitude not always recognized by the chroniclers of those days, for it was rather of manner than of contest. It was the old question of the survival of the fittest. With European complexity and American simplicity contending for the prize, and the battle, though won for the best, was not without compromise. Before, however, Fastening our gaze upon those yet distant days, let us look at the woman of America as she appeared in the period preceding that of storm. We have spoken of American simplicity, and with all the coming of luxury during the latter years of the southern colonies, this was still an attribute of the American woman. But it hardly applied to her dress or outer guise in any respect. In the very year, 1750, with which we have begun our steps into the period of the Revolution, we find in the Pennsylvania Gazette 
an advertisement that is of present interest to us as suggestive of the style of dress affected by the household of one of the most typical americans of his day whereas on saturday night last the house of benjamin franklin of this city printer was broken open and the following things feloniously taken away viz a double necklace of gold beads a woman's long scarlet cloak almost new with a double cape a woman's gown of printed cotton of the sort called brocade print very remarkable the ground dark with large red roses and other large and yellow flowers with blue in some of the flowers with many green leaves a pair of women's stays covered with white tabby before and dove-colored tabby behind with two large steel hooks and sundry other goods etc it is evident that the family of benjamin franklin himself were somewhat addicted to gauds and fripperies about this same date george washington is found writing to england for certain articles of dress for his stepdaughter miss custis then but four years of age and for this miniature bit of humanity he orders such things as pack-thread stays stiff coats of silk masks for her face caps bonnets ruffles necklaces fans silk and calamanco shoes and leather pumps while for her small hands were ordered eight pairs of kid mitts and four pairs of gloves we are told on excellent authority that at this time the southern dames especially of annapolis baltimore and charleston were said to have the richest brocades and damasks that could be bought in london small simplicity here and the good wives of new york and new england were learning to follow their leaders in the fashions yet in manners there was in the north still a leaven of the old puritan sternness the reverend mr burnaby who published a book called travels in america in seventeen fifty nine records therein that when the captain of a british man-of-war who had left his wife at boston while he was on a cruise was met by his spouse on his return he very naturally kissed her in the sight of all men the meeting taking place on the public wharf but this act was against the statute which forbade kissing on the street as a great indecency and the reprobate captain was promptly hailed before the magistrates it will hardly be believed that these gentlemen actually sentenced the englishman to be whipped and had the sentence executed and though to be whipped was not then considered a greater disgrace than now is to incur a fine it is nevertheless pleasant to a modern to read that the captain which latter he had become most popular in boston invited his judges to a dinner on board his ship and there had them triced up to the rigging and to each meted out the scriptural forty stripes save one but the incident shows us the moral atmosphere of new england at least in some of its parts for it is unfortunately undeniable that in connecticut the abominable practice of bundling was at the height of prevalence and popularity about seventeen fifty the inevitable reaction came a little later however 
and the fulminations of Jonathan Edwards and his fellows, at last came to have their effect. And by the end of the revolution, the custom was no longer recognized by any respectable community, with one or two marked exceptions, and these exceptions ceased to be such before the coming of the new century. Yet as late as 1775, we find the diary of Abigail Foote, from which we shall later make a more edifying extract, recording as a matter of course the fact of Ellen Foote, sister to the writer, bundling with a young man, till sun about three hours high. It is pleasant to read that a few weeks later the pair were cried and married. Such were the curious contradictions of customs and morals found among our Puritan forefathers. A man might not kiss his wife in the street, but an unmarried woman might, if clothed, spend the night in bed with her lover. There were many other contradictions of manners. For instance, what could be more suggestive of utter simplicity than the diary of Abigail Foote, to which reference has just been made? I will quote an extract from it as an example of the life spent by young girls of her time. Abigail wrote in 1775, and she lived in Colchester, Connecticut. Here is a record of one of her days. Fixed gown for prudy just to clear my teeth. Mend mother's riding hood. Augu in my face. Ellen was sparked last night. Mother spun short thread. Fixed two gowns for Welch girls. Card toed spun linen. Worked on cheese basket. Hatchelled flax with Hannah and weeded fifty one pounds apiece. Pleated and ironed. Read a sermon of Doddridge's. Spooled a piece, milked the cows, spun linen and did fifty knots, made a broom of guinea wheat straw, spun thread to whiten, went to Mr. Otis's and made them a swinging visit. Israel said I might ride his jade, set a red dye. Prudy stayed at home and learned Eve's dream by heart, had two scholars from Mrs. Taylor's. I carded two pounds of whole wool and felt nationally, spun harness twine, scoured the pewter. The information concerning Ellen is to us more suggestive than interesting, and why to card two pounds of wool should make anyone feel nationally is not clear. But we can gather from the candid diary of young Mistress Foote a fair idea of the life of the young lady of that day. Varying with section in customs and application, it was yet typical in its way, and speaks volumes of the simple and admirable training of the women of the period. But being on the search for contradictions at this time, look upon the picture of the elaborate headdresses worn at that period, found in a letter from Anna Green Winslow. I had my headis roll on. Aunt Storer said it ought to be made less. Aunt Deming said it ought not to be made at all. It makes my head ache and burn and itch like anything, Mama. This famous roll is not made wholly of a red cow tail, but is a mixture of that and horse hair, very coarse, and a little human hair of a yellow hue 
that I suppose was taken out of the back part of an old wig. But D made it all, carded together, and twisted up. When it first came home, Aunt put it on, and my new cap upon it. She then took upon her apron and measured me from the roots of my hair on my forehead to the top of my notions. I measured above an inch longer than I did downward from the roots of my hair to the end of my chin. Nothing renders a young person more amiable than virtue and modesty without the help of false hair. Red Cowtail or D. The Barber. In this letter, written in 1771, Mistress Winslow treats the matter jocularly and even wittily. But it was a grave enough affair, that of the Hedis, to the average dame of the day. We are told that the front hair was pulled up over a stuffed cushion or roll and mixed with powder and grease. The back hair was strained up in loops or short curls, surrounded and surmounted with ribbons, pom-poms, aigrettes, jewels, gauze, and flowers and feathers, till the structure was half a yard in height. Fashion in this wise had gone to even greater extremes in other lands, but there was not much of colonial simplicity about this sort of thing. We are not told directly whether Abigail Foote, the spinner and carter, wore such a monstrosity as that described when she went to pay her swinging visit to the Otis family, but even if she personally avoided such extremes, yet these flagrant contradictions were in constant evidence in the life and garb of the New England woman of that day. Nor were her more southern sisters far behind her in their disregard of consistency, even though they manifested it in variant ways. In good and evil projections, all these things have survived and combined in the American woman of the present, though not in their old aspects. It was about the beginning of the named period that there happened in Virginia a charming incident in which is displayed a feminine trait worthy of chronicle, even if universal in nationality. At the famous college of William and Mary, there lived a bachelor professor by the name of John Cam. He had reached the period of his life that we euphemistically call middle age, when there came the end of his bachelorhood in this wise, among those who listened to his exhortations, for he was preacher as well as professor, was Miss Betsy Hansford, of the family of the Hansford of Bacon's Rebellion, known as rebel or martyr, according to the sympathies of the speaker. She was a pretty maiden, and she was besieged with offers from the youth of the neighborhood, among others, from one who, having himself unsuccessfully pleaded his suit, bethought him of obtaining the services of the gifted divine as intermediary. The latter was willing to undertake the somewhat delicate part assigned to him, and he proceeded to show to the obdurate maiden that matrimony was a holy and much-to-be-desired state, fortifying his position with citations from the Bible. When it came to the quotation of texts, however, Miss Betsy proved herself an adept, by telling Mr. Cam that her reasons for refusing her young suitor might be discovered by an examination of Second Samuel, Chapter 7. Home fared 
Mr. Cam in search of a Bible, for the young lady refused to lend him one, and there he found that the text read, And Nathan said unto David, Thou art the man. Stronger hint could hardly be given, and was not needed, for the Reverend John Cam and Betsy Hansford, spinster, were shortly afterward married. The Virginia Betsy thus fairly rivaled the Puritan Priscilla, and perhaps surpassed her in the delicacy of her hint. But darker days were coming, when there was to be but little thought of marrying and giving in marriage. And already the shadow of those days was felt by womanhood throughout our land. If the women did not as yet feel the actual presence of the storm, they saw their husbands and brothers and fathers go heavily for the fear of the days to come, and they saw the land becoming divided into two hostile camps. The time was fast nearing when the women of the country would be called upon to show that they knew as well as any man of them all the meaning of patriotism, when they would become the very nerves, as the men were the sinews, of the land in its distress. Darker grew the days, and more serious became the bearing of the woman as well as the men. Nor would the former be excluded from the councils of their country. Though they might not take place in the public meetings, they inspired the thoughts of the men who there poured forth a flood of patriotism that could not be stayed. It was the gaze of his wife, as she sat in an agony of suspense among the audience, that roused Patrick Henry to the splendid effort that lost the parsons their case and gave him that fame which culminated in the House of Burgesses, when there was question between patriotism and prudence. And doubtless it was the home council that sent him forth to do his duty that day and kindle the fire that was to sweep over the land until British misrule had been burnt and purged away. This is speculation, not history, but we know by record the spirit of the women when there came the days of proof. Before, however, embarking upon the subject of the women of the revolution proper, there may be described the personalities of two remarkable women who flourished during the period which is being considered, but whose lives were spent in the conflict of religious discussion and not that of arms. For some reason, possibly because of national liberty of opinions and speech, America has always been preeminently the nursery of the female religious fanatic. The 18th century, in its latter half, gave to the world two remarkable examples of the female apostle. And though but few vital memories of either survive, yet these women are worthy of the place in this record for their singular, though limited and temporary, influence, and for the resemblance in certain ways, at least of one of them, to one of the most prominent feminine leaders in our own day. About 1770, the influence and power of a woman named Anne Lee became acknowledged among a strange community, the Shakers. We are told that through her at this time, the present testimony of salvation and eternal life was fully opened 
according to the special gift and revelation of God. Words that are not unfamiliar to us of the present day in application to another woman. And that she was received by the society as their spiritual mother. Later we find that from the light and power of God which attended her ministry, she was received and acknowledged as the first mother, or spiritual parent, in the line female, and the second heir in the covenant of life, according to the present display of the gospel. Even to this day, she is called by her few remaining followers the mother, but she herself always claimed a yet higher and, to sober thought, blasphemous title, saying of herself on many occasions, I am Anne, the word. She was not an American by birth, but came to this country in 1774, attended by a few followers who believed in her pretensions, her husband, Abraham Stanley, being among them, and on our shore attained fame and following. On the voyage, the ship, as we are told with much gravity, though the tale is hardly original, sprang a leak and was in grave peril of sinking. But the mother put her own hands to the pumps, and under her supernatural force the water was soon ejected. Anne remained in New York about two years, and then went to Niskiana, where she spent the remainder of her life amid her worshippers, save that, in 1781, she made a progress through several parts of the country particularly New England, and was received with scorn by some and worshipped by others. She died at Nisquana in 1784, having in her brief residence in our country attained a notoriety which remained, in its way, unequaled for more than a century. The estimate in which she was held may best be judged from the concluding stanza of a poem written by one of her enthusiastic followers. How much they are mistaken who think that mother's dead, when through her ministrations so many souls are fed. In union with the Father, she is the second eve, dispensing full salvation to all who do believe. Thus, in almost all ways, in her title, in her assumption of a nature, but little, if at all, lower than that of a deity, and in the devotion with which she inspired her followers, Anne Lee was the prototype of the most notable woman of our day in America. But Anne Lee is now, a brief century after her death, held in memory only by a few uninfluential and rapidly lessening people, and in this also she may prove the true prototype. The second and less noted of the two women religious leaders who will find record in this chapter was Jemima Wilkinson, who was born in Rhode Island in 1753, thus being a Native American. When she was about 23 years old, she was taken seriously ill, and during the illness suffered from suspended animation. Of this circumstance she took advantage by giving out that she had been dead, and that during her absence from the world she had been invested with divine attributes and authority to instruct mankind in religion. 
by virtue of her delegated powers she professed to be able to foretell the future to discern the secrets of the heart and to have the power to cure any disease and as is generally the case with such impostors failure to heal was accounted for by want of faith in the uncured individual all these pretensions have a familiar sound and the present century cannot boast a great or at least universal advance in such matters beyond its predecessors but jemima made a dangerous innovation not adopted by her rivals ancient and modern when she professed to be able to work miracles and offered to demonstrate her powers in this respect by walking upon water a frame was constructed on the banks of seneca lake and a crowd assembled to see the test but the matter ends in absurdity for the prophetess on driving up in an elegant carriage descended to the shore and entered the lake to the depths of her ankles then turning to the assembled people she inquired if they had faith that she could accomplish the miracle since without that faith she could do nothing of herself she received unanimous answer in the affirmative whereupon rather logically than effectively she replied that in that case there was no need for her to perform the miracle and incontinently returned to her carriage and drove away this was ingenious but hardly convincing one would think yet jemima lost little if any of her prestige by this fiasco she was called by her followers the universal friend perhaps with double meaning since she was educated by the friends and in some ways professed the tenets of their sect and in seventeen ninety led a small but enthusiastic band of worshippers to attract in western new york near penn van where at a place called jerusalem the inspired prophetess and thaumaturgist died in eighteen nineteen as late as eighteen fifty some of her credulous followers still existed but they are now practically extinct though neither of these women exercised any formative effect upon the american woman of the present they were typical of a certain class of perverted femininity and remarkable in their resemblance to later idols of their kind and are thus worthy of chronicle they are well cleared from our way however and we may turn to more pleasant themes in the story of the truer representatives of american womanhood of the mid-eighteenth century the name of one the first in many ways of these representatives will involuntarily rise to the thought if not to the lips of every reader of this book the name of mary washington the mother of him who is still generally regarded as the greatest of americans it may be that the fame of mary washington is vicarious that it rests entirely upon the character and exploits of her great son but this as was with most of the verdicts of history is not well deserved the greatness of george washington may not be called in question but it is no treason to assert he would have been the first to acknowledge that the foundations of that greatness both of character and achievement were the handiwork 
of his mother. She was herself great in all the qualities that make for grandeur in womanhood. Here is what is said of her by one of her biographers. She was remarkable for vigor and intellect, strength of resolution, and inflexible firmness wherever principle was concerned. Devoted to the education of her children, her parental government and guidance have been described by those who knew her as admirably adapted to train the youthful mind to wisdom and virtue. With her, affection was regulated by a calm and just judgment. She was distinguished, moreover, by that well-marked quality of genius, a power of acquiring and maintaining influence over those with whom she associated. Without inquiring into the philosophy of this mysterious ascendancy, she was content to employ it for the noblest ends. It contributed, no doubt, to deepen the effect of her instructions. This is critical rather than enthusiastic praise, and therefore the more worthy to be trusted. Nor are all Mrs. Washington's virtues here set down. She was a woman of exemplary piety of the good old quietest school. She was religious without being theological. She was a notable housewife and manager, and she earned the fine old title of lady by being indeed an almsgiver, though her lack of wealth limited her power in this respect. Her already quoted biographer, in her somewhat stilted but earnest language, says, Her charity to the poor was well known, and having not wealth to distribute, it was necessary that what her benevolence dispensed should be supplied by domestic economy and industry. How peculiar a grace, adds our biographer, with well-modulated enthusiasm, does this impart to the benefits flowing from a sympathizing heart. Lafayette said of Madame Washington that she belonged to the times of Sparta and ancient Rome rather than to those of his own day, and Mrs. Sigourney, whose fame as a poet has now failed, but who once was held in high esteem, thus wrote on the occasion of laying the cornerstone of the monument erected at Fredericksburg. Methinks we see thee, as in olden times, simple in garb, majestic and serene, unawed by pomp and circumstance, in truth, inflexible, and with a Spartan zeal, repressing vice and making folly grave. Thou didst not deem it woman's part to waste life in inglorious sloth, to sport awhile amid the flowers or on the summer wave, then fleet like the ephemeron away, building no temple in her children's hearts, save to the vanity and pride of life which she had worshipped. Better sentiment than poetry, perhaps, but serving to show concerning Mary Washington the thought of a day nearer to her, and therefore truer in judgment than our own. Withal, Madame Washington was a woman of the most perfect simplicity of bearing and of character. When her illustrious son returned to her after leading the armies of his country to their final victory, 
she talked with him of the perils and privations of old friends of her home and affairs but said no word of the glory which he had won to her he was still her son and not the great general or even the beloved patriot at the ball given that night in his honour she appeared arrayed in the very plain yet becoming garb worn by the virginia lady of the olden time her address always dignified and imposing was courteous though reserved she received the complimentary attentions which were profusely paid her without evincing the slightest elevation and at an early hour wishing the company much enjoyment of their pleasures and observing that it was time for old people to be at home retired leaning as before on the arm of her son when lafayette exuberant frenchman that he was in her presence eulogized to the skies the prowess and deeds of his chief the mother of that chief replied with a simplicity admirably contrasting with the high-flown encomiums of the marquis i am not surprised at what george has done for he was always a very good boy goodness and greatness were undisseverable in her mind she was the madame mere of this country in station and the gift of a hero to the world but greater contrast than that existing between two women in all other respects save perhaps in strength of will and purpose could hardly be conceived and the world will surely always accord the palm for true greatness to madame washington rather than to the mother of napoleon it was in character and gift to the nation only and not in incident that the life of madame washington deserves chronicle and others now demand notice in this chapter though the wife of washington will be spoken of in an ensuing chapter as being the first of the first ladies of the land mention must not be omitted of one whose very existence has been well-nigh forgotten the sister of washington of her it is true there is little to be gathered but we are told that she was a most majestic woman and so strikingly like the brother that it was a matter of frolic to throw a cloak around her and place a military hat upon her head and such was the perfect resemblance that had she appeared on her brother's steed battalions would have presented arms and senates risen to do homage to their chief further she was not noted and she lived her life in quiet hardly coming within the radiance cast around by the deeds done by her illustrious brother only for his sake does she deserve notice here End of chapter seven part a